Hello and welcome back to the Fenditon Gallery podcast, hosted by me, Hannah Munby. In this episode, I was delighted to interview artist and printmaker Sarah Gillespie, who's currently exhibiting at the gallery as part of our Art, Science and the Natural World exhibition. The exhibition brings together three artists who have recently completed an invited residency with the Cambridge Conservation Initiative, focusing on lesser-known red-list species that are in decline due to environmental change. Sarah Gillespie was born in Winchester in 1963. She studied 16th and 17th century methods and materials at the Atelier Neo-Medici in Paris before going on to read fine art at the Ruskin School of Drawing and Fine Art. Born into, in her own words, a chaotic creative household, Sarah says that art materials were just always around to be experimented with. That and the fact that she spent much of her early years outside exploring the natural world has been pivotal in the artistic path she has taken. Sarah's detailed monochrome mezzotints celebrate one of the UK's most elusive insects, the moth. Sarah says, since I began studying and drawing moths 10 years ago, I have felt more and more aware of their importance and the need to record and draw attention to their fragile beauty. It was during her Cambridge Conservation Initiative residency that Sarah discovered that almost all species of moth, and there are over two and a half thousand, are in serious decline. In this interview, we chatted about Sarah's early childhood and the influences that has had on her career, what exactly a mezzotint engraving is, and how she wants her work to be an apology to the natural world for the damage we have caused. I hope you enjoy this conversation and thank you for listening. To view Sarah's work and find out more about the exhibition, visit fenditingallery.com. Do you want to just give us a bit of information about you and, um, you know, what inspired you to become an artist? I don't remember a time when I wasn't drawing. I don't remember a time when it, when drawing was not what I did. I, I grew up. I grew up in a rather eccentric household with um, uh, with wonderful parents, both of whom are, are sadly no longer with us. But they were wonderful, but chaotic, really chaotic, really brilliant, really hardworking. But it was chaotic, and um, they 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 met at the Royal College of Art, and they were they came out of the Royal College College of Art in that extraordinary time at the end of the fifties, at the beginning of the sixties, when everything was um everything was open and and possible i think and they started a, a small design studio outside london they they rented a derelict building outside london so that the rent was low and they basically started a, a small design business building making a lot of the time making sets for television you know it's burgeoning television was quite a new thing then and they made a lot of sets they made a lot of exciting theater sets and that's how they started off but the point of telling you that is is to say that there was in my house much like a musician grows up with instruments around there was in the house always um paper my mother actually started paper chase so there was always paper oh, wow. there was yep there was always <laughs> paint there was always gold leaf there was always silk screens there was always um materials the materiality of making art making structures making design there was always clay there was always wax there was always plaster there was always um th that was just around that was there was plenty of of that that wasn't a strange thing that you had to go out and buy so i think as a child you just grew up and we grew up at their feet while they ran this um 
place which made um, sets basically it was the simplest way to describe it so I remember that but I do also remember the chaos and a lot of the time it was unhappy and I was unhappy at school and I think when I could say that when I could identify the time when I really um, got into making art as something um, self-propelling if you like something not just something that was happening as a reflex but just something as a kind of with with the direction and uh, and um, choice around it was in my late teens having been sort of unhappy and fairly disastrous at school and suddenly realizing that this was something that I could do and that elicited a different response and also not only elicited a different response from other people but also made me uh calmed me in some way and made me feel okay so, so that's like sort of self-expression and you actually sort of trying to find your channel for your self-expression and yes and we can come on to self-expression I, I have a problem <laughs> with the notion of self-expression ah, okay. let's come back to that one I, I really have a big problem with 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 our obsession with self-expression but it was ah, a self if you like a self-actuation or a self a, a early self-awareness that oh I can yeah. do this and that elicited a different response in other people and also took me somewhere karma and then what happened was I had kind of messed up all my university and art school applications and stuff like that and I but but by the time I was late 17 I knew I wanted to do art and my father I think I came home from school at the end of school and with this sort of a-level portfolio of art which I had just I more or less abandoned my other a-levels and just did art and yeah. um and I think he realized that um he had a, a sort of I was going to cramp his style if I came home and lived with him my mother had long since left so I so he said being the Irish immigrant that he was he he just had that wonderful open way of thinking about things that doesn't involve just this country and just went well if you want to be a painter you better go to Paris and sort of we just found places to go and get interviews and I ended up to cut a long story short we ended up getting on the ferry with my portfolio in the back and going and doing these interviews in art schools in Paris. And I ended up spending a year in Paris. Oh, amazing. Was formative. That was completely formative because I was studying 16th and 17th century methods and materials. So we're still with materials and materiality. But there I was suddenly studying, in a, I was wildly out of my depth in lots of ways because I was studying with a lot of American postgrads and it was a very serious place. <laughs> and somehow <laughs> there I was. But I had um what it took which was an absolute determination and an ability yeah. to to work and um and that was that was formative that was yeah absolutely that was, that was my training if you like I did go on to art school I went to the Ruskin but that was um I would say far less formative than that year in Paris so it sounds like from your sort of early childhood there were lots of like you say materials that were you encouraged to experiment with and therefore you know when you did go off to Paris and and were working very much on a kind of materiality sort of way that perhaps had informed that as well and that that's maybe what they yeah. saw in you to to get yeah. you on with all these postgrads and <laughs> yeah. I well I that was no cleverness of my own it's just it was a it was a very small art school and um, it was an atelier in fact it, yeah. so it was much more of that old-fashioned thing where you have a master teacher and a cook and you're there and you live there and everybody does ev you know everybody talk all night and there's like you know lectures and drawing and life drawing and you just work all the time 
and then yeah, eat and then wonderful. talk and then work. Um, I don't think I was encouraged to experiment by my parents. I, I think I was just, um, uh, they call it benign neglect. They just left, they just left us alone <laughs> and there was all this stuff around. So yeah, no, it was, uh, it, well, I, I look back. I look back and think, wow, how fortunate, you know. Yeah, yeah, sounds wonderful. I mean, particularly in, you know, a time when actually children um, aren't necessarily encouraged to to do art. It's, it's less and less part of a curriculum at yeah. school and things like that. And I think it's such an important, you know, even if you don't yeah. go on to be an artist like you have done, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's an appreciation and it's an understanding mm-hmm. and it's, um, I won't say self-expression, but it's a way of kind of relieving something that um, is potentially, you know, would otherwise come out in other ways which um you know children can go down different paths and um I always found that it was quite uh, black and white as to whether you could kind of go down an art route or a, or a like a kind of scientific route maybe um and you know we'll come back to that a bit because you know of course now we're, we're looking with you in this exhibition that we're doing um at the gallery how art and science are very much intertwined or how they can intertwine yeah. to kind of solve yeah these these world problems that we're facing Um, so that would that would be sorry carry on no 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 say what you were going to say please well I was going to say that's that's the other side of the story part of this very free uh, childhood um was that we we had a we lived it was in the countryside we were out and it was a farmhouse in the middle of the fields and I had enormous amounts of time spent outside in inordinate amount of freedom just so I spent a great deal of my childhood outside, making camps, you know, exploring, climbing trees, doing all that sort of stuff and wandering. And we used to do things like wander, follow the follow the little sort of stream for miles and things, you know, stuff that you can't imagine. Children, I don't. Anyway, yeah, it, it was absolutely. an extraordinary amount of freedom. And that also, uh, in, I think, just made it so that that's where I'm at home in in the outdoors i don't have a scientific background because i will just briefly say that i had exactly the same experience as i hear so many i I talk to so many scientists who say they really had to make a choice at one point and they they and doctors meds medics yeah had to make such a choice at one point and they loved art they always loved drawing but they had to leave it behind and do that i got confronted with that choice at a level you i could not do biology and art it was not a not just yeah, not, allowed, yeah. not allowed them so you you absolutely had to choose and I ended up doing English and history which I don't regret but I would love to have done biology so my next question was going to be you know how how does the natural world influence you and how you became to be interested in the natural world but it sounds like uh, you've sort of answered that with your kind of outdoorsy life so so yeah. let's sort of rephrase it how how did you become to focus on that with your work um I don't I've never made images of anything else that was that's I think from the very very first images were landscapes and um I remember doing some really probably horrible huge daffodils and things like that were very early on but um now I've just always that's 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 what that's what interests me and feels and feels right and then and and that was in, intuitively and instinctively that's where I have always that's where my gaze has always been, has always fallen. And I, I, and then I think what, I think what has happened is that as I've grown older and then also matured and, and worked and worked and worked over so many years, I've, I now realise that actually that's, 
although that started as I'm wondering if I can express this that that started as an unconscious impulse over over time it became a it has become a more conscious and more meditated and more um a, a more clear or a clearer vision I'm going to use that word vision and um, because you feel that you want your work to say something about the natural world do you, would you say or? well yes this is where we circle back around to self-expression yeah. I think I think for, for for a very long time that's what I wanted to do and so, all through art school and then all through the early part of my career I felt slightly odd and like an outsider because it was uh, art was either entirely about self-expression or about con concept very very um sort of head up conceptual work yeah. and there was me wanting always wanting to to work with the natural world which is just i just it's such a magnetic pull that it wasn't going to be this you can't really change well, i suppose you can try to fit yourself into other boxes but it, it i mean I, and i think i felt very uncomfortable and ill at ease with myself for a lot of years because i kept trying i need to be more this is what's contemporary this is what's required i can remember at art school them saying to, saying now okay that's fine sarah but now can you express something of yourself and I would just not understand that question. I just couldn't understand what was being asked of me. So so as I've grown older, what's happened, and, and as I've gone on, as I've realised and come to an understanding that actually I don't, I'm not even slightly interested in self-expression, not even remotely. It's the the least interesting thing out there is me. <laughs> I want... <laughs> <laughs> I know I you know I'm I, sure I that's really, not true but <laughs> no 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 it really is it's I really really there is so much magic out there that's just waiting for us to pay attention and yeah pay attention and and hear it and see it but why would you want to talk about yourself I mean well, I know that we are encouraged we are encouraged and people are encouraged young artists now are encouraged very much to focus on their to re-explore their identity um and so on and so forth and I'm not knocking and that may be for some for some people maybe it's just never been the case for me I'm not interested I'm interested in I'm interested in something that is far more possibly you might use the I might use words like devotional or almost what I want to be is like a a an ear or or a tuning fork or something that I want to I want to feel and know what it is that's out there uh, and and then deeply pay attention to it. And then I beyond that, there's also in, in later years with this kind of collapse of biodiversity that's happened in my lifetime, mm. a sense that one wants almost to perform some kind of bow in response or apology in response for this extraordinary damage that we've meted out onto the natural world. So if you like my practice has developed in that direction and 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 mm. that the the more the more i've let go of notions of i should be doing this or i should be doing that and the more i have allowed myself to fully go towards what i think i probably always wanted to do the sort of the i think the happier and the better it's it's got does that make sense does that any yeah that absolutely make sense? yeah and i suppose my only comment would be that actually that is part of your identity in some way because you're talking about a childhood where you were outside you were involved in the natural world you were you know you're not betraying yourself but you are I suppose betraying your beliefs and your not beliefs that's the wrong word but your kind of the environment in which you are most comfortable in 
well, with the a product world it's like, yeah yeah with a, so with a product of our environment yeah. yeah but i but but i don't need to there's no point or need in me um i don't want to make it about about me and my identity yeah. what i want to do to try to explain it is, is i want to make myself something of like a, of a lens if you like that just that mm. can just take in and the clearer i can make that lens the better so that sounds like it's a good time for us to bring in the um residency that you're doing with um the cambridge conservation initiative which yeah. is obviously what our exhibition is all about so um there's three of you that are part of it um doing this this residency um yeah. with the cci i'm going to refer to it as the cci so um everyone knows what that is now um yeah. so how is that kind of um you know this this work and this want to be a lens how is that sort of translated into becoming an artist in residence with the cci and, and your work there well that was an interest it was, it's been very very interesting the research has been completely fascinating i have really really enjoyed um the privilege of, of having a, a door opened into that world and there were frustrations, which I'm really happy to talk about as well. I'd been I'd been making work about moths for 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 some time now. I've been doing I've been doing that, and that's an again another conversation because I I I don't have a scientist as I have to explain. I don't have a scientific background. I had a, just an openness, and the into that openness has come these these moths and I'd been making work about this and John Fanshaw of the CCI had come to see an exhibition of mine down at Kessel Barton which is a wonderful wonderful gallery down in Cornwall and um, we'd fallen into a conversation and we then started talking about me taking part in this residency and the idea was that he he asked me if I would look um, at moths that are um, in decline but moths and specifically moths that are listed with the um with the IUCN the international union is it for the conservation of uh, nature I with he he asked me specifically to work with the IUCN and Cambridge Museum of Zo the University Zoology Museum and look yeah. at moths that are in decline and what was absolutely fascinating and and slightly crushing when I first got there was the two things that happened were the first interview I had with Edgar Turner who's head of entomology at the museum and he said Sarah you could pick almost any moth oh, and I went I went into his crowded little office and said you tell me what I, as an artist, I want to collaborate with you. What can I do? What message? What do you need? Use me. What do you need me? What story do you need me to tell? And his first response was that you could take almost any moth, Sarah. They're all in decline. They're all crashing. Um, so I had to digest that. He went on to say other things, which I can talk about. Um, and he was, maybe I should just finish on that. He was very keen and what I learned from him was to think in terms of habitat, not individual species. Um, and then I went to speak to Craig Hinton Taylor, who runs the IUCN, and he said, this also was a blow, um, the IUCN have we have not done red lists for insects. We've we've done most mammals and amphibians and um, birds, but yeah. we haven't insects are such an enormous taxa, we haven't started. And he kind of more or less was hinting that they, you know more or less don't know how to start you know it's yeah. they of course they do they the IUCM but they haven't they've they've been you know this is um so that was confusing because when you look at um reports and field guides about moths they seem to have I use they seem to have red data book statuses next to them so they'll say endangered or critically endangered or extinct presumed extinct 
etc etc and so I that took a bit of that was another eye-opener for me so what's happened is that butterfly conservation as a charity who are also the charity for moths although they're only called butterfly conservation have taken the IUCN's red data book rules which are an extremely well thought out I mean carefully 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 constructed set of rules which they've constructed very carefully in order that they can be sort of immutable and they don't have to keep changing them every you know they, they've designed yeah, them so they can last for centuries or at least a century sort of thing and it, anyway butterfly conservation have taken those rules and they have applied the rules to the data that they have which is data from a lot of its citizen science data from moth recorders up and down the country and then there are these and um, there are I can't remember how that many there are 90 or 100 and something of these fixed traps all around the country which gather moths every night for data and they've applied them to those rules so that was those were the first kind of big eye openers for me working with these scientists is one the enormity of this uh just the enormity of what we're talking about with insects and two um the actually they're all crashing and i think um what do I want to say about this? Uh, I was very welcomed. Everybody was very um, wanted to help me. But I think if I'm tr if to be truthful, I think it's very, very hard for artists and scientists to know how to work together precisely because we've all grown up with this rather divided education. I would okay. say they don't, they don't I don't I think it's really hard. I think it takes people of great sort of breadth like John to try and straddle the two worlds and to try to get people into conversation. I actually had more wild, amazing conversations with some of John's students who are on the MPhil in conservation leadership and stuff like that. And there you can move more into, with those young, very, very young people seem to be more able to flow between ways of thinking and ways of recording and ways of imagining and ways of speaking about or um, writing about what's going on in the world whereas I think that I, I really honestly feel that these really senior scientists who are just extraordinary and I, I am in no way it's very hard to express this without sounding like I'm criticizing and I am in no way criticizing the work they do is completely incredible and completely necessary but they are so stretched and so busy and so just desperately trying to get funding all the time for what mm -hmm. they do even at Cambr in Cambridge yeah. Cambridge University that I think they're well they're just full if you like they, they're like a full glass there's nothing else there's no room for anything else which is really really sad and I learned a huge amount from them they were generous with their time and um, it was great but um, so I we're, a long, that, um, we're a long way from it I think from a genuine collaborative yeah uh, atmosphere okay so why why one of my questions was going to be you know why do you think it's important that artists are collaborating with scientists and involved in these conversations well i vary in what i think on bad days i think we're not important we're just in the way and and, art, and scientists are doing really 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 important work and 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 art, most of us artists are just self-absorbed and um and on, on better days i think that what we have to offer Let's put it like this. I've read now lots and lots of reports about what's happening with the, the, the butterfly conservation produces these long reports called the state of British Britain's larger moths and they produce them every couple of years and they are fabulous reports. 
and despite even though they they fill these reports with lovely color photographs of people working in habitats and moths and so on and so forth they they basically come down to charts and tables to, as as a way of presenting the data and a few people are going to read those other charities funders other scientists moth enthusiasts of which there are a surprising number but but I have spent I don't know how many years now talking to people around my work with them with taking my work to places exhibiting it and talking to them and most the vast majority of people haven't haven't got a clue I had a, I had a TV crew turn up to film me just two years ago film me and my work and before we started we started just talking about moths because they you know they get their tv crew they get sent to film all kinds of things and they didn't know really that there were any moths other than clothes moths and they didn't know they couldn't name a butterfly for me between four of them eventually they re eventually they thought of peacock butterfly oh yes peacock and there's another one isn't there red something or other you know <laughs> just just two <laughs> And so then when you tell them that there are two and a half thousand moths in the British Isles and that there are more day flying moths than there are butterflies in the British Isles, you know, people's minds are blown. And but they so that's just me talking about I mean, that to some extent, I sort of went on strike for a few years and just refused to talk about my work in any other terms other than in terms of biodiversity collapse and that you know I had all these endless conversations I'm only just starting to talk to people again about just the work in more formal normal artistic terms but so I think that what sorry to come back what I think what artists have to offer is they have we can be like at our best maybe something like an entry drug something attractive a strange attractor that kind yeah. of gets people's interests makes them what's that arouses curiosity and that's really hard to do because we are totally overstimulated most of the time now bombarded with images and information so it's very very hard to 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 make something that 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 arouses curiosity in people and or and i mean if it arouses love and empathy and compassion then that then you know heavens that's yeah that's the real thing uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you to a certain extent with the, you know, I'm sure sometimes artists get in the way, but actually I do, I do feel quite passionately and we do at the gallery, you know, that there is a um, incredibly strong link between art and the environment and, you know, um, the kind of science and conservation world that that is exactly as you say, you know, we are raising awareness and trying to put in front of people that wouldn't read these papers, you know, that yeah. are pages and pages and long or whatever um but actually it's quite it can be quite stark you know your your images are incredibly striking you know they are uh, you know black or monochrome um works and you know you're suddenly faced with a moth which like you say people either can't name or they're kind of small so you wouldn't necessarily you know you wouldn't necessarily see them close up um no. and therefore you see suddenly see a beauty in them and yeah. it's almost you know we are quite um selfish and self-absorbed in some ways and you know if something's not very beautiful we think oh well you know we don't really care about that or whatever and actually suddenly you're putting a beauty to something which you know I'm sure is very beautiful anyway I've never looked at a moth closely I have to say I'm one of those people but um mm. uh, by suddenly seeing it you know in front of you um you, a similar size to you in mm. many ways um 
you are confronted by something when where and then like you say you suddenly say well yeah this is these are dying out did you know that and it's this mm. um it is a it is a way in for people to start to care I mean yeah. you know on the a very sort of extreme level you know we look at the kind of work that obviously David Attenborough has done with raising the awareness of global warming and yeah. dying species and things like that and that is because it's incredibly beautiful imagery yeah talked about in an incredibly beautiful way and yeah. suddenly your heart goes oh my god I need to do something about this and it's the artistic aspect to that which I think yeah. is um so important yeah. um for that sort of um work and if you think of if we if we use the broadest possible meaning of the word art if you think about you know wonderful writers like Robert McFarlane and and journalists like George Monbiot people like that they write and Mark Cocker his work is phenomenal you you hear these you read well well written work will pull you in and make you make you open make you again make you curious make you think a bit entice yeah. you as it were you know? absolutely so let's talk a bit about um uh, your work so I'm going to be a complete novice and um, I'm sure that some of our listeners will be as well. And I'm going to ask you what a mezzotint engraving is. OK, a mezzotint engraving is um, a form of intaglio printmaking. So intaglio is an Italian word that just means to cut into. So in, uh, printmaking broadly divides into two types. So there's relief printing, which if you think about potato cuts and liner cuts and wood cuts, those are, that's what the ink sits on the surface. And in Taglio printmaking, the ink sits in grooves that you create, grooves and dents and holes that you create in the sheet of copper, either using acid or with tools. And Metzotint falls into the category of Intaglio prints that are made not with acid. There's no acid. They're not etchings. They are engravings and, and they are made with tools into a shiny sheet of copper. So mezzotint literally means half tone. Mezzotinto, again in Italian. And it was invented in about 1642 by sort of, um, it seems like two people sort of came across it simultaneously. They, they Engraving, copper, engraving with line into copper had been around for a couple of centuries, more, three or four centuries by then, and was used largely to re reproduce um, paintings. It was a way, if you like, pre-photograph photography, it was a way of re reproducing um, paintings so that they could be disseminated more widely. Europe, mostly, almost entirely Europe. So what line engraving, when you start trying to when you, you so line engraving is beautiful but when you start trying to make tone it's really difficult you've got to cross hatch and stipple and you've got to build up an enormous density of marks and those marks being hand cut into copper it's really hard and really um time consuming so what these um ludwig van siegen is the name of the one of them i can remember what he invented was the idea that you you just thought about it in a different way. So if you roughened the surface of the entire plate, it would print black. And then he thought what you could then do instead of, so you make the whole place covered in pits and burrs, and then you would start scraping those back to smooth areas and the smooth areas will print paler. Ultimately they'll print white if you get them really smooth. So that was his kind of outside the box thinking. And that's that's what Metzotint is. It's, it's a, a black to white printmaking method that is 
it became so popular in the 18th century, it became known as the English method because people like Hogarth and, and people got so good at it. And it was it has a softness about it that is um, really attractive. But the reason I like it is because, again, going back to what I was saying earlier about trying to get yourself out of the way a bit as an artist so that you can be more of it more of a receiver is that it's a, it's a method that involves erosion or taking away so you're not making marks which have that implication of um well certainly in the western tradition have so much in them of of gesture and expression you're taking away constantly you're making yeah it's an art of erosion you're constantly taking things away and that somehow it's a bit it's poetic and a little bit difficult to describe it's like the pauses in poetry or the or the pauses in music you're paying attention to the pauses between things and there's something very open about that that i really like that's but you're the best right i can do <laughs> you're right about the softness and that, that's what strikes me about your work is that um you know they you have got you can clearly see that they're monochrome the black and the white but it's interesting all these half tones and all these other areas um yeah that aren't so sort of clear cut in many ways. It, it's, it has a softness and a sight. I mean, I know that when um, we were talking about your work before, you were very clear that you wanted people to know that there's no photographic element to it. So, yeah. so how is that in that case, it is created? Do you, how do you get the imagery of the, of the moths to then be able to draw or not to draw, reverse draw as yeah. you say, on, onto, the, onto the plate? Okay, so that's that is. Um, I, I use a moth trap, um, and the moth trap. If you've if you've done any moth trapping, you'll know that in the morning. So we experience moths as flapping around most of the time, don't we? In night, they're either flapping and beating themselves against the window, or trapped in the house, or flying past. Or if in the if you put a light box out and trap moths in the morning. When you go down there at dawn, the and it's important to get there before the birds, so it all happens very early. But they, the moths are cool and in a state of, it's not really torpor, but it's sort of they're sleep, they're sleepy and cool, and they stay very, very still. So the very small ones will will scoot off, but the larger ones stay very still. And you can, I've li literally spent whole days with the privet hawk moths just sat on the on my desk in the studio. Okay. So they're incredible subjects, They'll, yeah. especially the bigger ones, they'll sit nice and still. So I will make drawings and I will bring up my sketchbook for you um, for the exhibition. Yeah, um, fabulous. I'd love to see that. I make a lot of drawings and then I also take a lot of photographs, um, some very quickly with my iPhone and some with a proper camera. So you need a lot of reference because there's a great deal of detail there. And then, then when I've decided on what moth I'm going to do, I, it's very straightforward. I take a pencil and I draw onto the roughened copper plate and 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 the, the copper because the copper isn't shiny it's been roughened with this um toothed rocker which i will also bring up to show you and you can just draw very easily it's like drawing a bit like drawing onto onto emery paper or something like that it's very it takes the pencil very very easily you the the, the thing you have to do is remember to you've got to draw it in mirror yes because all printing reverses everything so you draw that you i just simply draw it on before I start engraving. Amazing. Oh, well, I'm really looking forward to, to yeah, to seeing your sort of sketchbooks and your processes as well. And of course the pieces that we have um, in the gallery. Um, so, so what what is the reason that, because you are also a painter and, and drawer. So what's, what's kind of 
struck you about mezzotint etch uh, sorry mezzotint engraving mm -hmm. um why are you using that with your moth project what's what's the sort of connection if there is any um i think it was um, um, this is possibly more detail than you need. I had been a painter for a long time and then got stuck in about 2010, 2012, as happens to people. And somebody said, come printmaking. And I'd done a lot of printmaking at art school and had enjoyed it. I'd enjoyed the the the, the print room as a place to be. I'd enjoyed it. What happens when you, well, again, we actually, it's a, there is a recurring theme here. What happens with printmaking is that there is so much technical procedural stuff that has to happen that your brain is very, very occupied all the time thinking, have I got this in the right order, in the right place? Is it registered? Have I done this bit first? Is the paper damp enough? Right damp? Is the pressure right? You know, everything. There's a lot to think about. And that is has the very beneficial side effect of stopping you again, stopping this kind of churning self, 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 what the Buddhists call a monkey mind. You know, your mind is occupied with just doing this thing right when it's just you and a paintbrush there's only there's just there's an awful lot of you in the room in a printmaking <laughs> yeah in a printmaking situation your mind is just kept occupied with how difficult it is and then there's um that's a relief i found printmaking an enormous relief so i think with I... printmaking is oh, sorry i was just gonna say with printmaking as well because we ran a um, contemporary printmaking prize two years ago uh no sorry last year we're doing another one next mm -hmm. year and what struck me with a lot of the printmakers was, um, you know, it's not just you because actually it's a very collaborative way of working. Yeah. You know, you yeah. are in a space with other people, let alone the yeah. machinery and everything else that you're working yeah. for. Sorry, that was just going to be to yeah. sort of continue on what you were saying. Yeah. And printmakers tend to be really generous people. It's just a funny yeah. thing. They just are. <laughs> they're just a, they're very generous with knowledge and very generous with um, sharing what they know and and that's a that's a nice atmosphere that's a nice yeah. atmosphere and and ha, uh, you know it it's it's quite subversive i'm not people tend to say oh, printmaking is terribly democratic isn't it and i don't think democratic is the right word but it's it it it's pleasing in its subversiveness and it in it subverts this idea of a unique um a unique object made by this personality the artist this brand that is the artist which again again i really like i think that that idea needs subverting it's art is much more collaborative always when i was started out this um residency with john he said sarah i want you to be collaborative and i remember our conversation going along the lines of all all art is collaborative really even people who sort of construct a mythology about the lone artist alone in their garret painting you're always in collaboration and in conversation it's 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 a bit of a bit of a myth well absolutely and and actually you know some of the most successful artists aren't the one that sort of ones that are lone artists so uh before I moved back to um Cambridge to run the gallery I was working at Wimbledon art studios and there were 270 studio spaces there and yeah. and the artists would meet every day for lunch and they would chat and they would go and give each other critiques and they would talk about yeah. their work and they would develop their practice because they could have those conversations and often actually the biggest question for for these groups of artists would be can you come and tell me if you think this is finished because yes. actually yeah. to be able to make that choice yourself yeah. is quite challenging and for someone yeah. to say yeah. no don't do any more or do do some more um yeah. it's probably quite helpful as yeah. well so. <laughs> but, and even even on the level of you know you work 
somebody makes the materials that you use and somebody yeah. frames your work for you and you have it if you're fortunate you have a dealer and, and or curators and you're constantly in conversation with mm. them and you have a partner if you're lucky that helps you with looking you know feeds you and looks after you and all that kind of <laughs> stuff and children that keep you you know down to earth you know so it's it's you're, you're not on your own really I yeah. think we like to imagine that and I think to be political for a minute I think capitalism has bought into that because they can brand that as the sort of the personality of this sort of you know you can you can make a saleable brand out of a out of a person but the reality is much much messier <laughs> oh I can't remember why we got onto that we were talking about printmaking engraving we were talking why, about printmaking oh yes why 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 you've chosen to use because had you done any other works mezzotint engraving before the moth came along no, no, I'd done a Metzlin art school, one Metzlin art school. So apart from, and nobody taught me, just one of the tutors said, I think you might like Metzlin, Sarah. Why I didn't pursue it, I don't know, just because it's very, very slow and you're very impatient when you're in your 20s, I think, probably. <laughs> but the reason, so I, I've had to, I've had to teach myself, which is not again back to the materiality didn't I mean I've made an awful lot of mistakes and wasted an awful lot of copper in a way except it can all can all be recycled but um I'm comfortable with materials so I'm comfortable with exploring with materials the um the reason that I think it really worked for me with the moths was because because you're not making marks you're taking away it's the difference between carving and modelling in sculpture. It's, that's another way to think about it. Mm. But because that, that's what you're doing, it speaks or it seemed to me to speak in a poetically in this. Uh, it seemed to say something about moths being both here and not here, the way they are. These presences in our lives that are they're here, but we don't see them and they vanish and they're out there all the time. They're out there in the day. The same number of moths are out there, but we don't see them. And that that kind of here and not here present and absent play seemed to me that Metzint spoke to that very nicely and yeah. I was and it, it, it um it worked for me at any rate oh good well lovely I'm really looking forward to seeing them all um up in in the gallery um which opens next week and so my last question on here um it was you know what's what's next really you know you're continuing with this residency but do you have any sort of other thoughts as to how you can move this project forward or the moth project and things like that um and then no the residency's come to an end oh has it oh the, sorry, yeah the residency oh, has this is the this is your show is the is the sort of culmination of it yeah now the residency has come to an end. i mean i hope i will continue in association with uh, with john and the, the good people at the cci um I, I, I will continue to make images of moths, but I, I am also being called back to, to, to make images of, of, of the land, landscape. All these words are very inadequate, aren't they? Landscape, countryside, they're all rather yeah. kind of enlightenment. Here I am, I gaze out at this. I will continue to make images of our fellow beings is the and the, their habitats is, is the wording yeah. I'd rather use if that doesn't sound too pompous. Yeah, no, that that's doesn't... that's what I want to do. I don't think I will do much more um, images of museums of museum collections of moths. One thing that I did find looking at a lot of moths in collections, both in the University of Museum of Zoology here in Cambridge, and um, I must say that the museum in Exeter has been incredibly helpful as well. Wonderful. Um, 
is that looking at trays and trays and trays of dead moths is um, depressing. I can imagine that would take a bit of a <laughs> it's hit, especially when you're thinking, <laughs> looking at them in a sort of way to try and save them all, and here they are. I mean, you know, there yeah. are there are importances to collections like that um, yeah. for historical. There are research. It's yes, yeah. historical, but and it's it's quite important to to stress really with with that it isn't. It is not moth collecting, which more which happens very little now. It's very non. It's not. It's frowned on. People you can do it for people do it for research, but it's not. It's, but it's not collecting of moths that made them decline. What's made moths decline? What the cause of the decline is is the, is the usual suspects. It's it's loss of habitat. It's climate change. Oh. It's pollution, pesticides, light pollution. You know, the 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 collecting is is a sort of Victorian habit that's largely oh made. yes absolutely no sorry i wasn't implying that, yeah. that these collections yeah. are wiping out the moths but no I, but, uh, I people can think see maybe... why looking at lots of them um yeah. would be quite sort of harrowing <laughs> after yeah. so harrowing. many months yeah harrowing and depressing and also it, it, it says something about our, our humanity with this sort of desire to have one of everything you know not just one of everything there are trays and trays and these collectors wanted one of every possible permutation they had hundreds yeah. of the same moth um it's just depressing it's, yeah it's, uh, not so you sorry we didn't really touch on that so you were actually going to these collections and working directly from them or yes. was that part of yeah. your research sorry no I didn't say that clearly did I so I do the light trap for, but I but specifically for this residency I was in the museum storerooms I looking see. through looking through their collections yeah, and that okay. was um, or de spending days in these strange places. Have you ever been into one of their storerooms? In I have actually, funnily enough, I worked um, one of my other many jobs. Um, I worked at the university library when I was um, in between jobs um, about sort of five years ago. And we had to move a load of things for the um, zoology department. And it was all in these um, sort of places. And actually... Yeah. I sort of I I've got a sort of sense of yeah. what I never saw the moths at the butterfly collection, yeah. but I certainly have a sense of um quite dark and dingy and sort of yeah. <laughs> on a Sealed on a red place. velvet or a green velvet or something on the back. Um, they or... tend to be on this sort of cream the the cream card. I mean, it's really hard to see. They're under under strip lights and they're under glass and it and that you're in this space that is very um odd and airless and sealed yeah. and and the bizarre things happen like if you don't move around the lights go out <laughs> and in the in the in the um, university museum in the bowels of the university museum I, I was told given all these incredibly strict instructions on how to conduct myself and how to handle the collections and for which I was grateful and it was it was fascinating and then the last thing I was told is that there is uh, there was this strange knocking it went like this I don't know whether you'll be able to whether the microphone will pick this up but you'd be in this silent cavernous room and then does that pick up on the microphone yeah yeah the knocking and I said after a while it, it kept happening every now and then after a while I asked the keeper of the collections what is that noise and they went we have no idea <laughs> we don't know <laughs> and I said you're in the in a in a vast storeroom full of dead insects and you're not curious to know what's going every few every hour or so well so, yeah especially if it's under such strict instructions you know I'm sure there's lots of rules about um what you can and can't take in and things and who knows yeah. what's causing this little knocking a That's beetle funny. trying to get out somewhere yes. <laughs> oh. well that sounds like a really um 
morbid but good place to end I suppose <laughs> okay um, thank I you very you... much Sarah that was that was oh, brilliant. thank you Hannah it was really nice to chat to you thank you for listening to this episode of the Fenditon Gallery podcast and thank you to Sarah for taking the time to talk to me Art Science in the Natural World is open at Fenditon Gallery from the 18th to the 27th of November 2022. For more information and to view the exhibition online, visit fenditongallery.com. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to like and subscribe to the podcast. You will also find other interviews with some of the artists and makers we've had the pleasure of exhibiting, including an earlier conversation with Rebecca Jewell, who is also part of the Art Science and Natural World exhibition. Thank you.